0: As you guys head back to your seats, I want to invite you uh, to open your Bibles to Esther chapter 2. <laughs> Esther chapter 2, if you recall, we're, we're in the middle of a series through the book of Esther started a few weeks ago. It's, just, it's called Esther, A Story of God's Providence. Uh, and we looked at, at the main chunk of, of Esther chapter 2 last week, considering God's providence in our pain. And this morning, I want to finish chapter 2, beginning at verse 19, uh, so Esther chapter 2, verse 19, and, and we're going to read through, actually, uh, the third chapter. It's a little bit of reading, but it's God's Word, so so it's worth it. Esther chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, and reading through the end of chapter 3, I want to invite you... I know you just sat down, but if you will stand out of reverence for God's word as we read Esther chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, reading through the end of chapter 3. Hear what the Lord has to say. It says, when the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not revealed her family background or her ethnicity as, as Mordecai had directed. She obeyed Mordecai's orders as she always had while he raised her. And during those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, son of, or two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to Queen Esther, and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. When the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows. This event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. After all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman, son of, son of Hamdatha, the Agagite. He promoted him in, in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid it, homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? When they had warned him day after day and he still would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated since he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, he was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. Listen to this, he planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom. In the first month, the month of Nisan, King Ahasuerus' twelfth year, the purr, that is the lot, was cast before Haman for each day in each month, and it fell in the twelfth month, the month Adar. Then Haman, I keep on calling him Haman, it's Haman, informed King Ahasuerus, there is one ethnic group scattered throughout the... The peoples in every province of your kingdom keeping themselves separate. Their laws are different from everyone else's and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up authorizing their destruction. And I will pay 375 tons of silver to the officials for deposit in the royal treasury. The king removed his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamdatha, the Agagite the enemy of the Jewish people. Then the king told Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with as you see fit. The royal scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and the order was written exactly as Haman commanded. It was intended for the royal satraps, the governors of each of the provinces and the officials of each ethnic group and written for each province in its own script and to each ethnic group in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the royal signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day, the thirteenth day of Adar, the twelfth month. A copy of the text issued as law throughout every province was distributed to all the people so that they might get ready for that day. The couriers left spurred on by royal command and the law was issued in the fortress of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink while the city of Susa was in confusion. This morning, I want to talk a little bit about this idea of God's providence in your position. God's providence in your position. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we dive into your word, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray that you will give me spiritual and physical strength as I seek to preach your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. God's providence. In your position. I told a few people the title of, that, of this sermon, God's Providence in Your Position, and a couple of them said it sounds like a Joel Osteen sermon. It's not a Joel Osteen sermon. I'm just going to tell you up front, this is not a God's going to give you that promotion, that position you've been wanting. It's not that God's going to give you that job. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about God's providence in your position. We'll get to that in a minute. I read a story recently. It was a couple of weeks ago. It was written by an employee at a major financial institution. Uh, He didn't give his name. He didn't give the names of the financial institutions. uh, But it was his story. Uh, And he was telling the story about a time when he was very frustrated for a promotion, uh, or that he was very frustrated when he was passed over for a promotion. You see, this young employee at this major financial firm, he was very good at his job. I mean like very good at his job. He was well liked by his superiors. They seemed to constantly praise the job that he did. And on multiple occasions, some of y'all might relate to this, maybe y'all are great employees and this happens to you all the time. But on multiple occasions, according to the employee's recounting of the story, he was told by his superior that when a time for a promotion came up, when, when a position in upper management was available, there was no way that he would get passed over for this job. Now, if your boss tells you that, you pretty good reason to believe them, that, that you're not going to get passed over for a position. And so something interesting happened because this, this employee, he had all the qualifications. He had a business degree from a prestigious university experience prior to working uh, at this financial firm. He understood the job. He did it with an unparalleled level of success. In other words, he was bringing in a lot of money for the company. That was successful. So it came as somewhat of a surprise to him when the positions opened up, the positions he would be qualified for, the position that honestly he said he wanted and that he was told that he would get. But not only did he not get it, he was never even asked to interview for it. And so he was a little confused, a little hurt. And he actually went to speak to his boss about it. And he put in the story, a quote from his boss, his boss just said to him, trust me, you are in the position you need to be in. Now, I don't know about you, but if I've been promised a position, if I've been told I'm qualified, I'm ready, I'm I'm good at my job, and then my boss comes back and says, we're not even going to let you interview. Trust me, you're in the position that you need to be in. I might be a little confused, probably a little hurt, maybe even a little angry, and this employee was. But as he continued to recount his story, the employee shared that he, he made the decision after that conversation that he was going to start looking for another job. Uh, and there was actually a major competing financial institution that was just down the road. So he reached out to them just inquiring about vacant positions, heard about a list of positions from HR, and he said, what do I need to do to apply for these positions? And to his surprise, he was told by HR at this other company that about a month, we're not really hiring for any of those vacancies right now. But if you reach back out to us in about a month or so, we'll be able to talk more. He found it a little strange. It's not normally what companies do. If they have vacancies, they try to fill the vacancies. But he decided a month's not that bad. I'll keep my head down. I'll keep grinding and reach back out in, in a month or so. Well, a couple of weeks went by. He kept his head down. He did his job. As much as it depended on him, he said he avoided that supervisor, his boss, because he was mad at him. He just kept working. But at the end of those couple weeks, he received an email from his supervisor saying that there was an all-staff meeting at the end of that day. It's a true story, all-staff meeting at the end of that day. And he thought that this was strange and somewhat ominous because as the employee recounted, he'd only ever been in one other all-staff meeting and it wasn't for good reason. So at the end of the day, he went to the meeting and he noted that ironically, he ended up sitting right next to the boss that had not given him the job, the guy that he was frustrated at. Well, in this meeting, the CEO of the institution explained that they were being bought out by the competing institution down the road, the same institution that this employee tried to get hired at. And it turns out the reason that they were not hiring was because as part of the deal and the acquisition of the company, the company that was buying it had agreed to keep all of the lower level employees on, but to get rid of all of the upper management to bring in their own upper management. The CEO explained all of this and the employee noted that in that moment his head just fell. Because it was in that moment that he understood why his boss hadn't given him the job. The employee said that he looked over at the man sitting next to him with embarrassment in his eyes and that the boss whispered to him, I had a purpose for not giving you that position. I couldn't tell you but I wanted you to still have a job because I believe in you. That's where the story ended. And so I read that, as I read that story, to say it like another pastor friend said it, that article started preaching to me. Because if a good boss will fight for his employee, even though they don't see it, by keeping them in the position that they are in for their good, even though they don't understand, how much more must that be true of our God? Here's the big idea of the sermon this morning. God's got you right where he wants to use you. God's got you right where he wants to use. I told you this isn't a story about how you're going to get your promotion, how you're going to move on to the next thing. No, no, no. This is a message that wherever you are, in the midst of trial, in the midst of joy, in the midst of celebration, in the midst of your job, in the midst of your home, in the midst of your friend group, in the midst of this church, wherever you are, God has you exactly where he wants to use you. You see, this chapter, this chapter, primarily Esther 3, It's a story of God's providence in your position. And as I mentioned, when I talk about your position, I'm not merely talking about your employment or the title that you bear. I'm talking about each and every moment you find yourselves in. I'm talking about every conversation you have, every season of life, in every moment. God's got you right where he wants to use you. So let me try to set this up for you, try to expand a little on what we just read, because I know we we read through it quickly. So we saw in in Esther chapter 1, we were introduced, I'm going to do it real quick. Y'all have heard it a couple times now, but I like to recap, as people might have missed it. So Esther chapter 1, we're introduced to King Ahasuerus. Uh, King Ahasuerus, his Greek name King Xerxes, we know who King Xerxes is from history, he's a guy that ruled far and wide, he ruled with power, he ruled with prestige, he threw a party for 187 days, this dude got tore up from the floor up, okay, was drunk, making decisions about the kingdom, told his queen, hey, you need to come parade yourself in your beauty uh, before all of my guests, and to his shock, the queen said, no, I'm not going to come parade my beauty, the king was outraged, he was frustrated, he assumed that now every household in the kingdom is going to lose control, every husband is going to lose control, because if I can't control my wife, clearly nobody else can control their wife, so let's issue an edict, we got to calm this thing, and here's the edict, you can't do that, you can't tell the king no, and to show you how serious I am about it, I'm going to remove Queen Vashti from being a queen, she will cease to be my queen, well then you get to chapter 2, after he does all of this, uh, The implication is that the king sobers up. Side note, biblical lesson. You will make your best decisions when you are sober. Just throwing that out there if that needed to be said to anybody in this place. Drunk decisions aren't good decisions. Amen. Amen. I should have got at least five or six. Uh, I know y'all's story. Um, So the king regrets his decision. His servants know that he, regret, that he regrets decisions. They said, we got an idea. We got a plan. Let's find a new wife for the king. We're going to go around to all the province in his vast kingdom. We're going to find the most beautiful virgins. We're going to bring them in. We're going to bring them before him. We're going to let him see if, if one of these women will be desirable for a wife. And one of the things that we talked about last week was that this is not a love story. This is a story of pain. Because Esther was trying to keep the law. She was pure. She was a virgin. And she is taken to a king without, without her consent that she is paraded before him and treated like a piece of property. As we've said in every sermon, this is a good reminder. This ain't the Veggie Tale story of performing for a king. This is not the movie One Night for a King where she read the story of Rachel and Jacob. This is a girl who is, who is forced to perform sexually for a king to try to win his favor. It's sin. It's wickedness. It hurt. But in the midst of that, God was working. And so Esther becomes queen, and our story picks up here in the beginning of chapter 2, verse 19. And I want you to notice what Mordecai is doing at the story, because it's very important. Look at verse 19. It says, When the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was what? Sitting at the king's gate. But we actually see it again in verse 21. During those days while Mordecai was sitting at the king's date. And this action of Mordecai that's repeated five times in the book, it's mentioned five times that Mordecai sits at the gate. It is a very significant statement. One commentator, Robert Gordas, helps us understand why this matter when he notes regarding Mordecai sitting at the gate. He says it's not a meaningless tag in any of the five occurrences in the book. He points out that throughout the ancient Near East, the gate was the place where justice was dispensed. The, the gate was the place where litigation took place. And while the litigant stood, the king and his appointed officials sat. And so Gordas, I believe, rightly makes the assumption that the reason that Mordecai is sitting at the gate... Remember before, when he was worried about Esther, he was just walking around the gate, but now he's sitting at the gate because most likely Esther helped Mordecai get a position as a magistrate or a judge in the king's court. And I think this is going to be supported later on when it says that the royal officials were told to bow down to Haman and Mordecai refused. It wouldn't have mattered if he wasn't a royal official at this point. So it's a lesser position in the kingdom structure, but it's a position nonetheless. That's why he's sitting at the gate. And so at the end of chapter 2, Mordecai overhears a plot. This plot is to assassinate King Ahasuerus. We don't know why. We don't know what he did to irritate these two eunuchs, but they're trying to kill the king. And Mordecai overhears it. Again, supports the idea that he now has a position because the only way he would be in a position to hear what the eunuchs were saying is if he held some sort of magisterial position that placed him among the eunuchs. So Mordecai hears that they're going to try to kill the king. And he reports it to Esther. And Esther says, hey, king... Uh, That guy, Mordecai, that that I had you put in that little non-important role, he heard something. He heard that there are some people close to you that are going to try to kill you. The Bible tells us they investigated. It turned out to be true. And they hung the two criminals. And the event, and this will be significant later, the event was recorded in the king's history. But at the beginning of chapter 3, the king doesn't honor Mordecai. The king honors another man named Haman. He promotes him to the second highest position, answering only to the king, and the king wanted to honor him. The king wanted to to show, man, I really appreciate this guy, Haman. I I want you to appreciate him too. So he gives a command that all of his staff, all of his royal officials, all of the magistrates, anybody who worked for the kingdom had to bow down when Haman came around. He said, you bow down to him like you're bowing down to me. But Mordecai decides... I'm not going to bow down. Some of the other magistrates, some of the other people around, they were concerned. They asked Mordecai, why aren't you bowing down? We don't don't want you to get in trouble. Why aren't you bowing down? And we know that whatever Mordecai said, it didn't satisfy them. Because they went and snitched to the king, to Haman. We don't know what Mordecai said when they said, because the implications, they're warning him over and over, like, you got to quit you got to quit doing this. You've got to start bowing down like you're going to get in trouble. Why aren't you bowing down? And, and we don't know what Mordecai said, but, but maybe Mordecai said, here's the thing with the people of God. It's never really worked out well for us when we've bowed down to anything other than God. Maybe, maybe Mordecai says that there was a time when the people of God bowed down, bowed down to a golden calf because Moses took too long on a mountain and it didn't go well for us. Maybe he said that there were times when we bowed down to pagan gods and, and kings and we found ourselves in exile just like we are right now maybe maybe Mordecai said, listen, there was a time when my own family went into exile, and there was another king named Nebuchadnezzar who built a big old statue and told everybody to bow down and a lot of my countrymen bowed down, but maybe Mordecai says that he knows that there were three who refused and and when they decided to be faithful, when they decided not to bow down to anything other than God, they were thrown in the fire, the fire meant for their demise, but in the fire, they were actually closer to their deliverance than ever before. Whatever Mordecai says, it doesn't prevent the people from running to Haman. And they tell him that Mordecai, he won't bow down. And it appears that Mordecai made a mistake because he let it slip that he was a Jew to these men. And so they tell, they tell Haman, and he's a Jew. You see, and Haman has a problem. Haman's one of those guys, you might know some, you don't have to point fingers if they're in this room, that wouldn't be nice, but Haman's one of those guys that thinks that he deserves more than he actually does. So when Haman hears of all this, the idea, I mean, this is, this is, it's crazy how it's written, the idea of killing Mordecai makes him sick. But not because he can't stand the thought of killing one man, but because one man isn't enough. I have to kill all of Haman's pe- or of Mordecai's people. So Haman starts casting lots. Basically, he's rolling dice. And the reason that he's rolling dice, you have to understand, Haman's not doing this to try to decide if he should kill the Jews. He's rolling dice. He's casting lots to try and find the right time to kill the Jews. He already knows what he wants to do. And so as he's casting lots, the day for the Jews' annihilation He's casting lots in the first month, on the 13th, and and the lot falls on the 12th month, on the 13th. So so almost a year's time is when the the lots tell him it's time to kill the Jews. So Haman goes to the king and he pitches this genocide to the king, but he pitches it in such a way as if it's in the best interest of the king. He even goes so far as to offer to pay 375 tons of silver himself to see this thing does to see this done. That's the man that wants blood. It says in verse 8, that, that Haman informed King Ahasuerus, there is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, keeping themselves separate. Their laws are different from everyone else's, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. He pitches it as if it's in the king's best interest to kill these people. And the king agrees. The king agrees, not knowing that he just signed the death sentence of his own queen. So the king says, Take what you need, take the pe- people that you need, and you do what you want to the Jews. Now, here's, here's how sure the king and, and, and Haman are of their own power they don't even keep the plan to themselves. Now, listen, I'm, I'm not an expert on killing people, uh, that's not my testimony. But it seems to me that if you're planning to wipe out an entire group of people, you don't give them a year's notice. You don't send a document out saying, guess what? It's the 13th on the first month. On the 13th of the 12th month, we're going to kill all of y'all. We're going to wipe you out, steal your stuff. We're going to kill your women and your children. But these two are so confident in their power that they give them a year's notice. They issue the order. It was sent to all the provinces. The Jews saw it. The people saw it. The leaders saw it. And the king and Haman are so sure of their power that they cause chaos and sit back with a drink. Look at the end of verse 15. The king and Haman sat down to drink while the city of Susa was in confusion. Now, I know that the story is just getting good. You probably want to talk about what happens next, but I actually want to just pause here and sit with this chapter for a moment. Because again, even in the chaos, even in the threats, you see God's providence at work. You see God's providence specifically as it relates to Mordecai's position. And there are some truths that I want us to consider as we look at Mordecai's position and not only Mordecai's, but we look at our own And consider this idea of God's providence in in our position. Here's the first truth that I want you to see this morning. God's providence places you in particular positions for a purpose. God's providence places you in particular positions for a purpose. Now, it is easy to look at the end of chapter 2 and to look at chapter 3 and think how nice it was for Esther to get Mordecai this job. But make no mistake about it, Esther did not give Mordecai this position because Esther did not give herself her position. In all of this, God has been working. And all of this, God has had a purpose, a purpose that Esther and Mordecai don't know yet. Like we said last week, they haven't read through chapter 10. They're living it. They don't know what God's doing. They don't know the plan. They don't know why Esther was forced to endure what she was going to endure. They don't know why God—why God's faith, or faithfulness to God demanded that Mordecai report a plot to a king who's going to turn around and try to kill him or allow for it to, to happen. They don't, they don't know what's going on. Going on, But in all of this, God is working. He has a purpose in the pain of Esther. He has a purpose in the position of Mordecai. It's God's hand that is placing the pieces and it's for God's purpose and ultimately his people's good. God is the one who's working. Now here's the reason why it's so significant to make sure we understand that it's not Esther putting Mordecai in a position. It wasn't Esther's beauty who put her in that position. It was God who was putting all of these pieces into position. The reason it's so significant that we get that right, not only about their story, but about our story as well, is because if we think that our position in life, whatever that may be, is solely a result of our efforts, then we will think that we get to define the purpose of the position. Let let me say it like this. If you think that the reason you have the job you have is purely because you worked hard all by yourself, you put in the time, you put in the effort to succeed, if it's all on you, then you get to define the purpose. If you think the reason that you have that husband or that wife is because you somehow managed to be the baddest looking person in the land and you wooed them with your charm it's a result of your effort, then you'll think you get to define the purpose. If you think that the reason you have the house that you have, the money that you have, the stuff that you have, is because you save so well, you plan so well, if all of it is because of your effort, then you get to define the purpose. But if... If we come to truly understand that everything we have, every opportunity that comes to fruition, every position we find ourselves in is a result of a sovereign God flexing his powers of providence, we will come to see that we don't get to define the purpose. That he gets to define the purpose of the position. Let me say it a different way, just trying to be clear. Wherever you are in life, Whatever your job, whatever your job status, whatever your marital status, wherever you live, whatever position you hold, it is not because of you. It's because God has a purpose. I don't know, for me, that's a comfort because it means that God's never caught off guard. God is never trying to figure it out as, as the story goes along. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows who you are and what you need. And most importantly of all, he loves you. And he's working for your good. And we we have to trust that because here's the thing. God's purposes in our positions are not always immediately known. And that's hard for us. It's hard for us. We don't know what God is doing. I know. I know that Mordecai didn't know what God is doing because... I read ahead if you didn't and read the beginning of chapter 4. And when this decree goes out, Mordecai's response is not, God's got this. God's going to save everybody. My life is good. He already told me. I know it's fine. No, he puts on sackcloth and ashes and weeps because he thinks that he he has, I mean, I can't imagine the weight on him. Mordecai, yo, this dude didn't just like condemn his own life. He condemned the lives of all of God's people. That's a weighty thing to bear. This man is broken. He does not know what God is doing, but God has a purpose in it all. And what I'm trying to tell you is that you will be in seasons and positions in your life where the only thing you have is to believe that God has a purpose because he hasn't made it known yet, but because you don't know it doesn't mean that God doesn't have it. God is working in the midst of every situation for his glory and for your good. And so when we don't know the specific purpose, we still have to be faithful. That actually leads to the second truth I want you to see this morning, that God's providence in your position does not eliminate the need for your faithfulness. God's providence in your position does not eliminate the need for your faithfulness. Let me say it another way. Just because God is sovereign, it doesn't mean you can be inactive. God controls everything. God controls the lilies that bloom, the grass that grows, the clouds in the sky. God is sovereign over all of it. But because he is sovereign, it does not eliminate the expectation nor the call that he has placed on your life to be faithful to him. God's providence in your position does not eliminate the need for your faithfulness. It's interesting when you consider the text that we read, when when you look at some of the choices that Mordecai had to make. And ultimately, they were choices of faithfulness. At the end of chapter 2, Mordecai had a choice. Do I tell of this king of this plot to kill the king or not? In chapter 3, Mordecai had a bunch of choices. He had a choice to bow down to a man instead of God. He had a choice whether or not to heed the warnings of the world around him to give in, or it ain't going to go well for you. He had a choice whether or not to reveal his eth- ethnic identity and in so doing, the God that he served. Mordecai had a choice at the end of the chapter when the order was given saying in a year's time that all the Jews would be killed. He had a choice to abandon Esther and to go and try and save his own life. Throughout our story, Mordecai is faced with many difficult choices, but what they all boil down to is one simple question. The question that Mordecai had to answer was, Will I be faithful in my actions to honor God in the position that he has placed me in? Will I be faithful in in my actions to honor God in the position that he has placed me in? Can I tell you, brothers and sisters, that your faithfulness in the day-in and day-out grind of your life, your faithfulness in the various positions that you hold in the areas that God has placed you your faithfulness when things go well, when things go wrong, your faithfulness ultimately always boils down to one single question. Will I be faithful in my actions to honor God in the positions that he has placed me in? Will I be faithful as an employee? Will I be faithful as a mother or a father? Will I be faithful as a child? Will I be faithful as a friend? Will I be faithful as a church member, will I be faithful to honor God in my actions in the positions that he has placed me in? Will you be faithful? And you might be thinking, well, I need to know what faithfulness looks like. I'm glad you said that. Paul reminds us what faithfulness Paul reminds us our purpose in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 20 and 21. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. He he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's what faithfulness demands. Faithfulness means representing your king and his kingdom in all that you do. I had the opportunity this week. um, I had the opportunity this week to go to a lunch with Dr. Tony Evans. Um, It was cool. Um, and during this lunch, Dr. Tony Evans took some time to just encourage some of, those, some of us who were in the room. And he was reminding us of the fact that we are a part of another kingdom. If you, if you don't know much about Tony Evans, Tony's all about the kingdom. He's got books on kingdom men, kingdom marriage, kingdom stewardship, kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. It's not because he just likes talking about kingdoms. It's because he sees the validity of what Paul says, that in everything that we do, we are to represent our king and his kingdom. He reminded us as as pastors and friends that this world is not our home. But while reflecting on the idea of being an ambassador, Dr. Evans mentioned this, and he said that the fundamental purpose of the church, so that's you and me, okay? The fundamental purpose of the church is to bring heaven into history. And what he's getting at is that the fundamental purpose of us as members of his body it's to make the kingdom known on earth. That's our purpose. That means that that's your purpose when you go to work. That means that that's your purpose when you fight with your spouse. That means that that's your purpose when you discipline your children. That's your purpose when you date. That's your purpose when you go to school. That in everything, our aim is to represent our king and make his kingdom known. What that also means is that we're not in this kingdom let me say it this way, we're not of this kingdom. We're in this kingdom, we're not of the kingdom. We shouldn't look like this world, we shouldn't act like this world. We, we have a different king, we have a different kingdom. I don't want you to forget what we say so frequently here at Newbury, that we, we were not just saved from something, we were saved for something. Ephesians 2.10 reminds us that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand ahead of time for us to do. That comes on the heels of of Paul talking about the fact that we are saved by grace through faith, and it's not of ourselves, it's a gift of God so that no one should boast. And what Paul is saying is he saved you because he loves you. It It is a result of his grace and his grace alone. But when he saved you, he put an expectation on you, an expectation that you would represent the God and the King who saved your life. And the question that we have to ask is, will we be faithful? And and I want you to hear me. That's not just an individual question. That's a question for us as a whole church. Will we be faithful? Because God has not only placed you in the positions that you are in for a purpose. God has placed us collectively in a position for a purpose. And some of y'all know that. Listen, if you don't know the history of Newbury, it's wild, man. Like, we did not plan to be in this building Some of y'all are like, I know, you've been here, you walked it. And we don't have a long history, but we probably have been in more locations than some churches who have been around for a hundred years. We joked all the time, we were the tabernacle, not the temple. We didn't want to be here. I still don't want to be here. But God has seen fit to place us in this building, in this community. Some of y'all know that we, when we set out to do this thing, our heart was for Shawnee. And so there was a season where a lot of us as pastors and leaders were like, why are we in this community? And the question that we have to ask is, do we trust that God has placed us in this position for a purpose? Are we as a church going to be faithful where God has placed us to represent his kingdom in this community? Because that's what we say our purpose is. The church is not here for the church. Church is here for the kingdom. And the moment that the church starts only being about the church is the moment that the church has ceased to be a part of God's kingdom. So will we be faithful? Will we be faithful in the position that God has placed us? And I want you to hear me say this now. It won't be easy. Faithfulness at times can be a very difficult decision, but this leads to the third truth that I want you to see, and I promise I'm going to pick up the pace. It's that, God's providence in your position does not eliminate the possibility of hardship. God's providence in your position does not eliminate the possibility of hardship. Listen to me, I feel for Mordecai in this story. I really do. I mean, he's he's like Esther. This is a brother that just wants to be faithful. He he wants to be faithful to his God, he wants to be faithful to Esther, he wants to be faithful to the position that he now has. And you would think based on how some people paint the picture of faithfulness that that would guarantee for him a life of health, wealth and prosperity. But that's not the story of Mordecai. That's not the story of the book of Esther in its entirety. As I mentioned, Mordecai not only through his faithfulness sentenced himself to die, he sentenced all of the Jewish people to death. And I want you to see that, what I want you to see is that God, is it just because God has placed you in a specific position, it does not mean that it's going to be all butterflies and roses. It does not mean that it's going to be easy for you. And you know it as well as I do, there are some churches that are teaching some really backward stuff on this. I mean, if I am faithfully serving God, if I am in the position that he wants, it will be made known to me by ease and comfort and safety and security. I'm going to have my bank account full. I'm going to have all the things that I want to have because that's how God blesses us. I just don't see it in this book. Just because God places you in a position, it does not promise, he does not promise that it will be pain-free. But what we have to believe is that when it's hard, God's not abandoning us. God's not placing us in any position where he will abandon you. Like, please hear me say that, that if you're just going through it, trying to be faithful in the midst of wherever you are, and it just seems brutally painful. It does not mean that God has left you. It doesn't mean you're not being faithful because God will never place you in a position where he will abandon you. God did not place Moses in the position to deliver the Israelites from the hand of Pharaoh to abandon them at the Red Sea. God did not place Elijah in a position to call down fire and prove the name of Yahweh to abandon him when a queen threatened his life. God did not place David in the position of delivering the Israelites from the Philistines and abandon him when the giant stepped out. God did not place Esther in the throne room of a pagan king to abandon her when the lives of her and her people were in danger. And God has not placed you in any position where he will abandon you. And hardship is not evidence of God's absence. For the believer, hardship is the evidence that God is working. But again, here's why believing that and understanding that is so significant. If we miss that, if we miss that God is working in the midst of hardships, we can start to abandon a position for what we think will be a, a better one. You know the statement, right? The grass is always greener on the other side. And that is a danger for us as Christians? when God places us in a position and that position gets hard to start looking to what's next and miss what God's doing right now. Because if God is working in the midst of hardship, then the safest, the best thing is not to get out of that position for an easier one. If God is working and it hurts, place me where God is working. Because it might hurt, but it's the safest place to be. I just see, the grass really isn't always greener on the other side. It might look that way, but it's just not. It's not always greener on the other side. Oh, no, I don't know. I need to move on, but I want to I flesh this out a little bit more. Like, We have to believe those truths of Scripture that tell us that God is working in hardship. That cannot just be sentiment to us. Because if indeed... God told the truth when he said that those who want to live a godly life will be persecuted, that in this life you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. If that is true, we have to expect hardship in any position that God places us in. And if we run from the first sign of hardship because we think that God has abandoned us, we will never grow. We read them last week. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you to test you as if though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in as you share in the sufferings of Christ. James, count it pure joy when you face trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Let perseverance have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. Rejoice when you are reviled for the sake of Christ. Like We have to believe that or we will miss all of our growth by running from painful situations. I don't like pain either. I'm not saying seek them out. I'm just telling you be faithful and they'll find you. But when they find you, trust that God has not abandoned you and that he is working in the midst of it. Here's the fourth, the final truth I have for you this morning. It's kind of the flip side of that coin in a sense. God's providence in your position does not guarantee earthly success. Oh, please hear me say that. That God's providence in your position does not guarantee earthly success. It does not guarantee a following. It does not guarantee money. It does not guarantee a platform. It does not guarantee you will make it over 13 followers on your Twitter account. God's providence in your position does not guarantee earthly success. Yo, know, this this kind of rocked me. I think you picked it up when I was reading it. Like, Mordecai saved the king's life at the end of chapter 2. Can we just pause there? For I mean, he saved the king's life. And he wasn't confused. Esther said, hey, Mordecai did it. And then they wrote the historical records, and they say, Mordecai did it. Mordecai saved the king from death. And then chapter 3, verse 1, after all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman. I remember reading that like, what? They misprinted the CSB Bible. Surely that's Mordecai. I mean, why would God make it a point to tell me that he just saved the king's life? And the king wouldn't even honor him for it. I mean, Haman, not Mordecai, not the man who saved your life. You're going to bless Haman? You're going to tell people to bow down and pay homage to him, give prestige to him, honor to him? Not Mordecai, but then I remember, Mordecai wasn't being faithful in order to gain earthly rewards in the first place. Mordecai was being faithful because he believed that his God was worth it. Mordecai didn't need the earthly praise. Mordecai didn't need the earthly success. Do you? Can I just tell you this morning? We're going to end with some candid conversation. That faithfulness to God will not allow you to be best friends with this world. It just won't. It won't. Paul picks up on that in Romans 12. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Jesus picks up on that. Be in this world and not of this world. Faithfulness to God, it it, it just doesn't work with being best friends with this world. Faithfulness to God will not guarantee the white picket fence and the dog. Can we have that conversation right now? Faithfulness to God does not guarantee or, or secure the American dream. I'll tell you about the American dream later, okay? Faithfulness to God doesn't guarantee a retirement account that's ready to go at age 66. Faithfulness to God will not guarantee a nice car, nice clothes, and a platform. Faithfulness to God will not guarantee safety, and it will not guarantee ease. Faithfulness to God will not guarantee that you will have everything you want, but it promises to give you everything that you need. Faithfulness may not bring earthly success, but it will bring divine reward. It will bring a heavenly reward. And you know, these last two points, they really shouldn't surprise us that much. Because they tell us the story of Jesus. Jesus did not have a life free of hardships. I think sometimes we minimize the hardships of Jesus. Like, we want to talk about living like Jesus. Hey, he was homeless. He was. Birds have nests, foxes have dens, son of God, son of man has no place to lay his head at night. The Bible tells us that he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Like, that's how the Bible defines the Son of God. Like, he he did not have earthly success because earthly success demands that the the successful of the earth recognize you and, and, and accept you as part of them. The scribes didn't want him. The Pharisees wanted to kill him. Even the people didn't have much use for Jesus. As the songs, as the old hymn Declares to us, bearing shame and scoffing, rude in my place, condemned. He st- he stood, sealed my part, and with his blood, hallelujah! What a Savior! That's not an easy life, but in all of this, Jesus was faithful. Jesus was faithful when the scribes and the Pharisees wanted him dead and he knew it. Jesus was faithful to proclaim the truth of God's kingdoms when people wanted him to shut up. Jesus was faithful when he healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, and caused the lame to dance again. But it's not only that. Jesus was faithful when he stood before the earthly powers and did not use his divine power to throw his own case out. Jesus was faithful as he endured a physical beating so that by his stripes we could be healed. Jesus was faithful to the thief on the cross who in the last moment, at the last breath, saw Jesus for who he was and Jesus saved his soul. Side note, as long as there is breath in someone's body, there is an opportunity for Jesus to snatch them up. Jesus was faithful as he died on a cross to pay a debt that we owed. And Jesus was faithful when he rose from the dead because he said he would. And to this day, in spite of all that Jesus has done, his name is still slandered and degraded. The name of Jesus is still mocked and belittled. To this day, Jesus does not have the earthly success that if anyone deserves, he rightly deserves. But can I tell you this? What Jesus has is so much more because he has a heavenly reward. If you don't believe me, all you got to do is look at Philippians 2. When it talks about the attitude of Christ who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And for this reason, God exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The world might not recognize the name of Jesus right now, but it will. Because his reward is in heaven. And church, please hear me. If we are living for earthly success now, we have forfeited our right to make much of the kingdom to come. Because our hope is not in the things of this world. Our hope is not in ease and comfort. It's not in everybody liking us. It's not having all the money and the cars. That's not it. Our hope Is that one day we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And church, make no mistake about it. It might be hard where you are, but God's got you right where He wants to use you. Again, it may not be comfortable, may not feel good, but God wants to use you. And the question that we have to answer is do we trust God's providence in our position? Do we trust that God is for us and not against us? Or are we just trying to get out for what might be the next great thing? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that you are sovereign. I thank you that you are for us and not against us. I thank you that you have communicated to us, God, it shouldn't even be a shock to us that following you will not be easy. Following you will not always bring earthly ease and comfort. But God, following you is worth it because God, we get you. And Lord, I don't want to minimize anyone's struggle or anyone's suffering because pain is not fun. It hurts. None of us want it. It is a result of the fall, but i pray that in the midst of our pain, that we would be able to just hold on to the fact that you are on your throne. God, in those moments when we doubt whether or not you could work through such hardship and such pain, I pray that we will fix our eyes on the cross and be reminded that, God, you have done some of your greatest work in the midst of suffering and hardship. As the author of Hebrews tells us, we are sanctified because of Christ's suffering And we will continue to be sanctified through our own suffering, God. But I pray that we will look to Jesus and be reminded of the Son of God who willingly suffered and died a death that he did not deserve to die. That he paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt that we could not pay. And God, I pray that we would look to the cross and the salvation that you have won for us as he died in our place and rose from the grave victorious and that we would believe that even in the midst of hardship, God, you are working in ways that we can't fully see or understand. God, give us grace to trust you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, church, at this time we... God, we want, we, we, we want to take just a minute to give you a chance to reflect before we...